passage comes from Acts chapter 12, verses 14 through 17. This is Rhoda. She recognized Peter's voice, and because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing uh, at the outer gate. You're out of your mind, they told her. But she kept insisting that it was true, and they said, it's his angel. (laughs) Peter, however, kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. Motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Tell these things to James and the brothers, he said. And then he left, and he went to another place. I want to pray this morning, but I I want to pray especially on this Memorial Day weekend for our country. Will you join me? Father in heaven, we take this opportunity to memorialize those who have fallen in battle to secure our freedoms. And those men and women who have given the ultimate sacrifice, their lives, and paid the price so that we might live free, free from tyranny, and as a united states. And we are grateful for their example, and we are thankful for the enduring symbol of their sacrifice. But sadly today, Lord, we are a nation, we are bitterly divided. Would you remind us again of the hope that is only in Christ Jesus, your son, who gave himself as a ransom for our sins, who gave the ultimate, paid the ultimate price so that we may know you. Remind us today, Lord, that it is only through the body of Jesus, the blood shed on the cross, that we are reconciled to you and have peace with God the Father. And God, we are thankful and we are hopeful for the future. And we pray right now, we join our hearts and we ask for another great awakening in the United States of America. Would you pour out your Holy Spirit again? And we cry out mightily unto you, Lord. And we ask that you would pour your spirit out and stir hearts to be hungry and thirsty again for the righteousness that they can only find in Jesus Christ. Would you pour out on this, your Holy Spirit on this land as we humble ourselves and pray And seek your face and turn from our wicked ways. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. Good morning, church. Thanks, Jeff. What he read is the story of Peter being released from jail. And it's an exciting story. I can't wait to get into it. But there's one thing that's a little different about here at this church. Uh, We don't want kids running free out of classrooms. And this is a shameless plug because we need teachers and leaders this summer so they're not freed from their classroom, all right? So we have a lot of kids. If you've thought about it or would like to serve or have maybe you don't want to or like to, we need you to volunteer for children's ministry this summer so kids are cared for. There's nothing better than raising a child up in in righteousness, and you can be a part of that journey. Uh, You can serve the Lord uh, by filling in for a classroom this summer. So find Ryan at the back table. I hope you consider that um, because as Peter was miraculously set free, you can miraculously be a children's ministry teacher. It can happen. Anyways. Uh, with that being said, we are continuing our story from last week. Consider this part two of Peter's release. We started last week, and Jeff laid the groundwork favorably for us. The narrative that's going to take place of Peter being delivered out of jail in the grasp of the enemy, um, we, we need to bring a, each other up to speed in order to do this well. So let's go back into Acts chapter 12, the first couple of verses, and let me remind you of what's taking place. First, The gospel's relentless advance has found favorable and fertile soil in the Gentile world. And the Gentiles are any group or culture that's not religious, not Jewish. And the Gentiles were getting saved. Yet the work the Lord was doing in Israel was continuing as as well. However, instead of reading about triumphs, we read of tragedies. 
In this case, the persecution is no longer merely religious. It's compounded by political adversaries as well. The chief political adversary is King Herod Agrippa I. He just executed James. He was one of the three closest disciples to Jesus. And he's now arrested Peter to meet the same fate. So why has this king opposed the gospel? Well, he likes his position so much, he fights against King Jesus' anti-imperial message to ingratiate himself with the Jewish peers and with his good friend Claudius, emperor of Rome. So from every other metric, though, if we were to look at him and examine him, he's a good king despite the fatal flaw of opposing King Jesus. Politically and religiously, he would stand out among the top echelons of Israel's leaders if we were to take him from the New Testament and put him in the Old Testament line of kings. He would be a thumbs-up kind of guy. We would actually reference him and say, we should be like Herod. But because he's in the New Testament opposing King Jesus and his message, we don't. He was Torah observant. He kept the festivals. He expanded Jewish influence in the area. But his fatal flaw was opposing King Jesus and his message. That's tragedy. There's persecution upon the church. But we must make note, like our brothers and sisters from the first century, our fight is not a struggle against flesh and blood, against rulers and authorities and powers and prominence. It's against the devil who seeks to destroy anyone who professes faith in Christ. Our short time together this morning in God's Word aims to equip this body with the hope and knowledge of kingdom triumph that God's kingdom triumphs over any adversary and any tragedy that comes our way. We have to ask a question, if the world opposes God's message and messengers, how does he ensure we survive? How does he ensure that we actually see triumph at the end of the age? Better yet, how does he help us see that we have triumph today? How does he recognize in the midst of our tragedy, we do have triumph? We have a victory And so this morning, we're just going to walk through three simple points that God binds his church together in tragedy, that we should expect God to move on our behalf, and that God's kingdom has no rivals. With that established in our heart this morning, we can confidently say we will know what kingdom triumph looks like when we see it. Before we jump into Acts chapter 12, I'd like for you to join with me one last time and pray for the Spirit to come upon us. Our Lord and our God. As we open up your word that you have written and that we have received, we ask for a humility of heart to perceive the words written and how to apply them to us. So, Father, may the Spirit be the teacher this morning. Anoint us with the ability to see and to hear what you have to speak to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So if you have your Bible with me, open up to Acts chapter 12. We'll start with the first couple verses. We're overlapping a bit with what Jeff said last week in order to prepare us as an on-ramp for the rest of the narrative. And so if we read, first and foremost, God binds the church together in tragedy. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. About that time, King Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church, and he executed James, John's brother, with a sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter too during the festival of unleavened bread. See, last week we were encouraged to expect opposition. And building off of that encouragement, we expect it, because God uses it for His glory and our good. The violent persecution of believers in Jerusalem was pinpointed in James' execution and Peter's arrest, but it's not an isolated event. The church is being persecuted together. A great tragedy has fallen on the church, but will there be a triumph? Place yourself in their shoes. What would you expect? See, we kind of think that tragedy and triumph are not 
uh, congruent. Yet tragedy and triumph are two sides of the same coin in God's economy. Yet we, for whatever reason, experience them as oil and vinegar, an unmixable substance, incomprehensible to one another. Tragedy and triumph are two separate things, yet in God's economy and reading in Scripture, they go together. One follows the other. I will concede the initial experience of tragedy is perplexing to the human mind. We ask how good comes from pain, from discomfort, or from a change so sudden we dare to even stop and contemplate how it happened. Yet as time passes, the faithful in Christ patiently wait God's interpretation of His will, making plain what we cannot yet conceive. We're sure to err if we scan God's work in vain with worldly wisdom, a wisdom that would have us perceive who God is through the lens of our circumstances. Instead, what Scripture and Jesus proclaims, God directs us to view our circumstances through the lens of His character. Instead, God directs us to view our circumstances through the lens of His character. Who He is interprets what He is doing. In this case, God is one. The three persons of the Trinity existing in perfect harmony and relationship. And since we are made in His image, and the church is the body of Christ, God binds us together as a church family in unity. And guess what He often uses to do that? Tragedy. He binds us together in perfect unity through tragedy. It's not above him or below him to use it. Look with me in verse 4. After the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently to God for him. Do you know what's something interesting to me? I think the events taking place in this passage are fulfillment of prayer prayed long ago. The events in these verses might be God's answer to Jesus' fervent prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was praying to the Lord in John 17, verse 11. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. And when Peter's arrested, the church unites in praying fervently for his deliverance. Yet their tragedy is probably an answer to this prayer prayed long ago. God is fulfilling his prayer and his promise. Their united prayer certainly began with James's arrest, but it continued for Peter's as well. And they were pleading for God to move on, on Peter's behalf, on their behalf. Do we see God move? Can we expect God to move on our behalf? In the midst of your tragedy, are you asking that question, God, how and when will you move? The hope is that he does. So do we expect God to move? With absolute certainty, I say yes. God moves on our behalf. Continue with me in verse 6. When Herod was, was about to bring him out for trial, that very night Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers while the sentries in front of the door guarded the prison. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and the light shone in the cell. Striking Peter on the side, he woke him up and said, Quick, get up! Get... And the chains fell off his wrists. For a moment, why don't you follow me on a little bit of a journey? Let's compare this Peter with the Peter we read in the synoptics, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Remember, he was a fisherman, grew up on the Sea of Galilee, well accustomed to what takes place on that sea. And one night, the disciples are with Jesus in a boat, and a violent storm erupts around them, and they are panicked, afraid of dying. But what is Jesus doing? He's sound asleep in the boat. And so Peter, along with the disciples, frantically wake him up. Wake up, Jesus, you got to save us. 
you got to protect us. And Jesus rebukes the waves and the wind and scolds his disciples. That Peter is not the same Peter we read about here, is it? No. That was the old Peter. And the mature Peter on the night before his trial and probable execution is doing what? Sound asleep. So sleepy, in fact, a light from heaven could not wake him up, and the angel had to smack him on the side of the face saying, get up, buddy, it's time to go. Jesus, Peter is like his master. He had matured so much in Christ's likeness that despite his impending doom, he could sleep soundly the night before. It's quite astonishing. Peter's trust is in God. Peter trusts God, period. Peter's trust is God. Peter doesn't know what God will do. He might free him or call him home. Either way, Peter rests securely knowing God is God. The prophet Jeremiah writes of trusting God when he says this in Jeremiah 17, verses 5, 6, or 7 and 8. Cursed is the person who trusts in mankind. He makes human flesh his strength, and his heart turns from the Lord. The person who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence indeed is the Lord, is blessed. He will be like a tree planted by water. It sends its roots out towards a stream. It doesn't fear when heat comes, and its foliage remains green. It will not worry in a year of drought or cease producing fruit. Look with me at the comparison being made. A person can either trust in themselves, in mankind, and flesh, or they can trust in God. In these circumstances, verse 6, I didn't have it read here, but verses 6 and 8, they, both of these individuals, depending on which way they trust, they both face drought and hardship. One is blessed, one is cursed. But their external circumstances don't establish that. Whom they trust does. In your heart, if you were to draw a heart on a piece of paper and draw a line down in the middle of that heart, on one side of the heart, you put the Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. On the other side of the heart, you put the unholy trinity, me, myself, and I. Every day you step into this world, you have two holy, true trinities that you can trust in. The holy trinity or the unholy trinity. To whom do you trust? Experiencing a blessing and a curse in this life is not predicated upon external circumstances, but upon what our heart trusts in. Notice with me a little bit more what Jeremiah emphasizes. Yes, he first says our confidence is in the Lord, but then he repeats his statement, altering it slightly, and dwell deeply upon this statement for a moment. Our confidence is the Lord. God's character and nature form the foundation for trust. Whatever is trustworthy or dependable find its origin in God, who created and sustains all things. Peter's trust is the Lord, in the unshakable, immutable God. And so as a result of his trust being the Lord, he sleeps without needing to know what God will do because he already knows who God is. Peter sleeps soundly despite impending tragedy and destruction, not knowing or not needing to know what God will do because he already knows who God is. Do we sleep with such a confidence? Is the foundation of our trust based in who God is and his character and his nature? Or is it merely in what he can do? One is much greater than the other. It's foundational. And so we see Peter's trust is the Lord. But the angel slaps his face and wakes him up. And so Peter gets up, wipes the drool off his face, and the angel starts to speak to him. Look with me in verse 8. Get dressed, the angel told him. Put on your sandals. And he did. 
Wrap your cloak around you, he told him, and follow me. So he went out and followed, and he did not know what the angel did was really happening, but he thought he was seeing a vision. After they passed the first and second guards, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened to them by itself. They went outside and passed one street, and suddenly the angel left him. What's awesome about this narrative is God isn't performing one miracle. He's performing many. Some chains fell off. The guards remained asleep. The iron gate opens one after another. Peter enjoys it, walks through it. But what does he think about this miracle? He thinks he's sleepwalking. He was out, and the angel had reminded him, essentially, hey, buddy, he had to remind him how to get dressed. Put your cloak on, put your shoes on. Come on, time to get out. Let's go. But what we see from Peter's action is Peter follows God's direction in faith. Peter follows God's direction in faith. Despite not believing the event is actually happening, or even remembering that God had freedom from jail, if we go back to John chap- or Acts chapter 5, Peter follows the, la- the angel's lead. Don't underestimate simple obedience to God in times of tragedy or perplexity. We may not have an angel telling us exactly what to do, but we have God's words with us. In it are the commands for life and for godliness. It is apparent to me that in times of tragedy and uncertainty, we are very quick to depart from what is most central to our faith. Pray, read, and believe. Worship, fellowship, join the church. Those simple things become the first step of experiencing tragedy becoming triumph. And yet we're so easily to depart from them because we think we have to search out some greater meaning. But remember, God is moving on our behalf. He doesn't immediately take away, hey, you don't have to pray, read, join a church, worship when you experience tragedy. Even more so we do those things. It's the spiritual equivalent of because I said so. I'll tell my kid that all the time, and yet the Lord is telling me in tragedy and trial and hardship, why must I continue this? Because I said so. Because it is the nourishment for your soul for life and godliness. But the best example for this is the very church that is praying for Peter. They don't know the outcome. They don't know what's going to take place in Peter's life, and yet what are they faithful in doing? They're gathered together in a room full of believers praying fervently for God's deliverance. They're obedient. Simple obedience is leading them through their tragedy, depending upon God to see the triumph. But that very church wasn't the, was also surprised just like Peter. The gathered church couldn't believe that Peter was free as well. Look with me in Acts chapter 12, verses 13 through 16, what Jeff just read for us. He knocked at the door of the outer gate, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer. She recognized Peter's voice, and because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the gate. You're out of your mind, Rhoda. But she kept insisting that this is true, and they said, it's his angel. Peter, however, kept knocking, and when they opened the door, they saw him, and they were amazed. You know what's amazing about this church? The church's faith was uncertain, but it was not lacking. The church's faith was uncertain, but it was not lacking. Although they were fervently praying for deliverance, they doubted Peter was truly at the door. And it's pretty ironic that the city is celebrating Passover, the Jewish feast commemorating the deliverance of the nation from oppression and certain destruction in Egypt, and God again delivers his servant from the hands of his captors. God is repeating the same miracle he did years before. God surprised faithful people. And he continues to do that with you and I today. 
God surprises me. I'm faithful to the Lord in what I read, pray, and devote myself to, and I'm still surprised by what he's able to do in and through and around me. And their expression, it must be an angel, signifies they actually thought he was dead, not at the door. They believed that when a person died, their guardian angel would appear in their likeness to communicate on that individual's behalf one last time. So the church had already concluded he was going to suffer the same fate as James. They were uncertain about what God was going to do, but they were faithful and there wasn't lacking in their devotion to that God. See, I've heard well-meaning people say that God didn't heal someone or the desired outcome didn't happen because we didn't have enough faith. That is not true. This passage provides sufficient evidence that God does not act on our behalf based on the intensity or the sincerity of our faith. He works merely according to his will. We are not the agents that bring about what God does and doesn't do in this world. Please take that burden off your shoulders. It is not because of your lack of faith that something bad has happened. It's because a good God wants to see you mature and grow in Christ-likeness. The church prayed for James and Peter with equal fervor. James died while Peter survived. Why? Well, the mystery of God's will we may never know, but ultimately what we can conclude is that God still required Peter on earth while James could go home. God delivered both men in different ways. We can be faithful to God while uncertain about what happens tomorrow. God will deliver us, but each of us, our deliverance will be different, but it will ultimately conclude in the new heavens and new earth of seeing our Savior. And so does God move on our behalf? Yes. With 100% confidence, I say, yes, he does. God moves on our behalf for our good. For the church gathered in Mary's home, Peter may have been delivered from certain death, but life won't return to the way it was. That's oftentimes what, form, what, what we form our prayers around. God, will you save us from our tragedy and return us to the way things were when that's not the purpose of tragedies? See, Peter goes into hiding, actually, as a result of him being delivered. He recedes as an active leader in the Jerusalem church. He hands off the torch of leadership to James, Jesus' half-brother in a way, when he says in verse 7, read this with me, tell these things to James and the brothers. He said, and he left and went to another place. In the book of Acts, we don't read about Peter until Acts 15, and he's just given a brief little uh, snippet saying he was there. But as far as the book of Acts is concerned, he is no longer the protagonist. The gospel is. And it's going to go with Paul. Church history would say that Peter from this moment goes on to Rome. And he founds the church in Rome and continues to preach there until he's crucified upside down. See, God moves on our behalf to move us into greater Christ-like maturity. This very James, who the torch of leadership has been handed over to, will write to us in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. He says, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Yes, I had to come to James. Yes, we had to read this passage in talking about tragedy and triumph. But here's why. The command in verse 2 to consider trials a great joy is only possible because verse 4 is the goal. God is moving on our behalf to make us mature and complete, lacking nothing. This is what a good God does for those whom he loves. He knows what we ought to be, and he works hard through his will to help establish us in Christ-likeness. Yes, God is moving on our behalf. 
In some ways, we know truly what it is. Other ways, it's undiscernible. But to the faithful in Christ are patient, allowing God to be his own interpreter. He will make it plain. And it may be not even this generation in which we'll see. Maybe it'll be the generations to come who will look back and reflect on, this is what the Lord was doing. God is moving on our behalf. He can do it supernaturally through angelic uh, help, or he can do it by simple obedience, prayer and devotion to his word and in his church. He can use whatever method, but brothers and sisters, he will deliver us out of tragedies into his triumph. This is undoubtedly a good God working in a powerful way to reveal how our tragedies become his triumph. All that being said, we know that's taking place, but the devil continues to oppose God in his work through earthly means or through spiritual means. But we would do well to remember one thing. At the end of this age, God's kingdom has no rivals. God's kingdom has no rivals. King Herod, who politically opposed the advance of the gospel, learned this well. After he was humiliated by Peter's escape, he had the guards killed and executed because that's the only way plausible for Peter to get free is if he had some inside help. He was a good king, yet he was also pretty shrewd. After securing some favorable trading rights with the surrounding peoples, he planned a day to celebrate that deed. And Luke records that account in the next couple verses, in verses 21 through 23. Read with me. On an appointed day, dressed in royal robes and seated on the throne, Herod delivered a speech to them. The assembled people began to shout, It's the voice of a god, not of man. At once, an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died. It's a pretty terrible way to go. This historic account is also attested to by Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian, who records these events in his own accounts, affirming everything Luke does. In fact, so similar are they that he describes Herod addressing the crowd in a royal robe covered in silver and just glistening in the sun. People couldn't even look at him without light being shining in their eyes. And he records that the people began to cry out, claiming him to be a god. Yet Josephus notes that Herod ought to defer that glory to Caesar, while Luke recounts that Herod should have humbly directed praise to God. But then both affirm that he became sick that day and died shortly after. You know what's funny? In reading the miraculous event of Peter's escape, people would read that and go, that's just a, that's a made-up story. We can't prove the supernatural. And yet in the, in the accounts of the gospel and in Acts, we have miraculous supernatural events bracketed by historical events attested to by other historians that helps affirm that what happened in Acts truly did happen because everything else is true. The irony of Herod, he was, man who looked, he was a man who looked glorious on the outside, yet inside was rotting and being consumed by worms. Why? Because he opposed and rivaled King Jesus. Yet he's not guilty of this charge alone. The rest of the nation and the Jewish leaders are entrenched in their stubbornness and pride to repent and to believe in Jesus as Lord and Messiah. If we were to jump back to Acts chapter 12, verse 3, we, read, we learn that Peter was arrested during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This was the prelude to the celebration of Passover. And it symbolized the nation's rejection of, un, rejection of unrighteousness and godlessness. The people would bring out their old yeast from the past year and symbolically burn it, saying, I'm getting rid of my wickedness, I'm getting rid of my desires that are not godly, and I'm turning my life around. I'm burning what is old and going to embrace and love what is new. 
Yet this gesture is completely meaningless. Instead of glorifying God, what do they celebrate? The death of James, his servant. Instead of praising the eternal God of heaven, they elevate and praise an earthly king as God's equal. What's God to do with an apostate nation, a rebellious people that opposes King Jesus' rule? What does he do? 26 years from this event, Rome, when all of its might, will come and crush this apostate nation, tearing down the walls of its temple, scattering its people throughout the empire. Why? Because God's kingdom has no rivals. Brothers and sisters, in the midst of our tragedy, God has made in his economy and kingdom tragedies a means to see his triumph, a means to see him as a good, all-powerful, all-loving God. Our tragedies are not the antithesis of that. They're often the means to it. But in order for us to accept King Jesus and his rule and his way of life and to embrace him, we must discover a passion for God and his gospel. We must discover a passion for God and his gospel, just like this church had, which is why they were gathered in the room fervently praying for Peter's deliverance. They had a passion for God and his gospel. Passion results in action. What I'm passionate about becomes what I involve myself in. We're passionate people. We have varied interests and pursuits, but nothing ever replaces the passion for God and his gospel. And so I think about you sitting in here. Do you have a passion for God and his gospel that you would affirm? That you would be, I don't want to say proud of. I don't think we're ever proud. There's always more in which we, we, in ways when we can grow. But would you be confident knowing my passion for the Lord is leading me to action to live a godly life? See, for me, I, I can't find it in and of myself. I have to surround myself with others who are passionate about God. So a way to discover a passion for God and his gospel is to first know God and his gospel, just like Peter. Reading the word of God is irreplaceable in the life of a person going through tragedy. Who is God helps us to interpret what he's doing. So reading and prayer, but another way we can do it is, is gathering around other believers who have a passion for God and his gospel, both alive and dead. I read Christian biographies not because I think someone's life is cool, because I think the way that they live passionately for the Lord is something that I would like to involve in my life, so I surround myself with others who are passionate. Read Christian biographies. I got a long list that I would love to give you. My commentaries had passionate, my favorite is John Patton. I know Jeff was giving me a hard time the other day about this, but I love John Patton, a missionary of the 1800s, and both of my commentaries referenced him. I was like, yes, this is, I know I'm on the right track. <laughs> but he had a passion for the Lord, so much so that when his wife died of childbirth and his son 12 days later from malnourishment, he stayed on the mission field. They're not going to die in vain. I'm going to continue to share the gospel with these people. How do you discover a passion for God and his gospel? Start with his word, start with him directly in prayer, and then go to one another as we're gathered together in our tragedy and glean someone else's passion. It was because of the church's passion led them to action that they prayed for Peter. We need to, be, we need to pray with passion for faith and deliverance. Fervent prayer, as mentioned in verse 5, is, a step, is one of the first steps in experiencing tragedy becoming a triumph because fervent prayer is an intensity of, of, an intensity of spirit and passion being poured out to God by us. Let me look at some other passages where the same phrase is used. 
In Jonah chapter 3, verse 8, the king of Nineveh, after hearing they must repent, otherwise destruction is on his way, proclaims this, But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil ways and from the violence that is in his hands. Crying out mightily to God? When is the last time you felt or compelled to cry out mightily to God? For some reason, we are more comfortable being subdued, and yet we look, out, we look through Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, and we see the faithful of the Lord crying out passionately, fervently to the Lord. They're asking for Him to move. We need not be ashamed that God would look at that and scorn it. He looks at it with compassion because through the obedience, He longs for the relationship. Then, it's not alone. Jesus does this in Luke chapter 22, verse 44 agonizing in the garden of gethsemane he says being in anguish he prayed fervently and sweat became and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground both of these verses describe the desperation conveyed to god do we p- permit ourselves to pray fervently we ought to when the prayer or the tragedy or the circumstances permit it believe me it doesn't have to be all the time If I heard that all the time, I would begin to question the genuineness of that prayer. And yet, in times when it's needed, we ought to. But I want to add a little caveat to this. When the fervent prayer goes out and the requests are made, I want to advise you that for those either praying for us or the people around us, pray first for their faith and then for their deliverance. First pray for faith and then deliverance. I learned this a long time ago through a mentor of mine, uh, Charlie Rutledge. He's actually a mentor to Daniel and Kristen. We, we kind of indirectly knew each other in California through this person, but had no idea. And um, his wife served in the church I was last at faithfully for a number of years. She was essentially the go-to counselor in the church. Anybody that needed something went and saw her. She was a licensed therapist and counselor. But she was diagnosed with early-onset Parkinson's. And she had to stop counseling right before I got there because any emotional uptick in her life led to a greater experience of Parkinson's. And so she had to recede from her involvement in the church, something she loved desperately. And she was so well connected in and around the church that at first everyone came around her consistently praying for deliverance, for healing, passionately and fervently. But it wasn't answered. Like Paul, she prayed three, four times and it never would. And then gradually over time, her relationships began to dwindle and dwindle and dwindle. And that's not because of her. It was because those who were around her couldn't conceive of anything other to pray for other than for her to be healed. But what did she eventually have to say? Stop. Don't pray for me to be healed. Don't pray for deliverance. Pray for my faith. Pray that I endure this with joy and contentment that I remain faithful to believe that God is good. I need to be surrounded by people. And so, brothers and sisters, whether it's you or whether it's the person around us, pray first for their faith. That's what makes a tragedy a triumph, is being able to see and discern who God is in the midst of what he's doing. And then, after you've prayed for faith, with all certainty, pray for deliverance. There was nothing wrong with praying for deliverance. Those who prayed for Tammy, she celebrated and rejoiced. But after the Lord gave his answer, he asked, she asked them to stop. But for those of us in the midst of our trials and tragedies, as they are going, please pray for deliverance. And what attitude of heart should we have when we do that? Well, when we pray for, to God for the deliverance that he seems best, assume it's yes until it's no. In faith, assume it's yes until it's no. 
It's okay to pray for faith and for deliverance and to do so fervently. Please, let's involve ourselves as a church in the lives of one another to pray fervently for faith and for deliverance. But if it doesn't come or if we've discovered a passion for God and his gospel, we must be prepared to suffer for the gospel's advance. You've heard this again and again as we go through Acts. But in this caveat, I want to, in this instance, I want to add a little caveat. The word of the Lord and his message going forth doesn't suffer or is not hindered, but those who carry it often are bound and bruised for its advance. It may be an external binding and an external suffering like John Bunyan, who was put in jail for professing the gospel and preaching and proclaiming to people that was contrary to the Church of England or outside of the, the accepted Church of England ways, and he was jailed for it. Yet in jail, what did he accomplish? What did the Lord do them? Do through him. What was his triumph? He wrote Pilgrim's Progress, one of the longest books in print that beautifully navigate the theological development of a soul in praise and worship to God. If you need to experience what it is like to be a Christian and where God is moving you, read Pilgrim's Progress. It's a triumph of the Christian life in devotion to God. Yes, it's a story but it will give you imagery and ideas that will lead to a great passion for God and his gospel. So there may be external suffering that are imposed upon us, but there's also internal suffering that comes out of us. Our suffering might be like Paul's thorn in the flesh, that the Lord aches that it didn't come from any else but him, and he prayed three times and it wouldn't go away. And yet, Paul wrote Romans 8, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. My grace is sufficient for you. His tragedy is our triumph today and it was his then. Or we can be like William Cooper who suffered from crippling depression most, if not all, of his life. He couldn't shake it. He came to faith when he was in college. And his depression never left him despite having faith in the Lord. He had bouts, ups and downs and he became good friends with and lived with John Newton the one who wrote Amazing Grace, most of our hymns. In fact, we've sung hymns by William Cooper that you would have no idea are attributed to him. And yet his bouts of depression and attempts of suicide rocked his world all through his life. And and it's thought to have believed he was successful at the end of his life in suicide. And yet in the midst of his tragedies and ups and downs, he knew to resort back to God. My trust is the Lord. And so phrase that we often say all of the time, that we wouldn't, you wouldn't know that it's ascribed to William Cooper as God moves in mysterious ways. He's the one who penned that. In his poem, God Moves, he writes this of being in tragedy, yet having his trust in the Lord, depending upon him for triumph. Let me read to you the poem, God Moves. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he fashions up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds that you so much dread, they're big with mercy and will break with blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err, and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter. He will make it plain. 
Kingdom triumph is found in a relationship with God. If you don't have that relationship, tragedies will always be tragedies. But in the presence of God, at the end of the age, there will be great triumph. I don't have to wait for that ultimate triumph. I experience it now in the presence of being used by God and recognizing him move on my behalf. And one way we can make that step today is to celebrate the ultimate triumph on the cross. We're gathered together here today for whatever reason. I don't know why the Lord brought you here, what led you to be at church. Maybe it's a part of habit. Maybe it's simple obedience. Maybe this is the first time you've stepped foot in a church in a long time. But God and his gospel is reaching out. There is forgiveness at the hand of Christ because on his cross, which should have been the greatest tragedy, became the ultimate triumph when he rose again three days later. And so this morning, we commemorate that through communion. In our time together, I hope this is a first step for you in recognizing tragedy becoming triumph because we profess the great triumph at the end of the age when Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And so as the ushers come forth and hand out communion, what Paul tells us about taking it, we have to have the right heart. If we have broken fellowship with a brother or a sister or a believer in some way, some form or fashion, and this moment, seek out reconciliation because we believe and follow a God of reconciliation. And those who have yet to profess faith in Christ, do not take communion. It is not something you can enjoy. It will not be a triumph for you in that moment. But if you would like to believe, let us pray with you. But for those of who are ready to take communion, as the bread is passed and as the cup is passed, this is our triumph. In the holding of the bread, it's the confession of sin of what Christ bore on the cross on our behalf. It is the tragedy that was destined for us that Christ took from us. And then as we take the cup, it is the new life that he now offers you and I. It is the triumph of the age that one day we will see God and the, and the tears and the pain and the uncertainty will dissipate. They will be but memories. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we ask for you to be our triumph this morning. I ask boldly for my brothers and sisters in this room that are experiencing great pain and anguish, whether of mind or of body. Lord, will you, through your Spirit, confer upon them the joy of their salvation. Help them to remember their joy that was found at the feet of the cross. Will you anoint us all with the Spirit to contemplate who you are and help us interpret what you're doing through your character. May we not look at who you are through our circumstances, but Father, May we know that through our circumstances are understood because you are a good God who loves us. Anoint this time of communion that we may be in your presence. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.